Hello, everybody. Great to uh, welcome you, those who are in the room today and those who might be joining us uh, on our YouTube channel for the live stream. Wherever you are, great to see you. Great to have you with us at Christ the King. If you were with us last Sunday, you'll know that we were exploring the meaning of a word that is central to Christianity, a really, really important word, and that word is gospel. I'm just making sure everyone, not everyone slept through the sermon last Sunday. Uh, that word gospel is all over the New Testament. Uh, we heard it in both of our readings this morning from Acts and also from St. Mark. Uh, and this gospel is something that Jesus Christ came to fulfill and also to announce, Mark chapter 1, verse 15. It's also something that Jesus' closest friends and followers, that motley crew that we know as the 12 apostles, they spent their life proclaiming and announcing this gospel after Jesus ascended. And a lot of them died for doing that. Notwithstanding all this uh, frequency of the word gospel, the meaning of it can sometimes be a bit unclear for us. I know that, in fact, after talking to some of you in this uh, congregation over the last few months, which is precisely why we're going to take some time at the start of this new year, last Sunday and today, to unpack that word gospel. So as we do that, let me begin by praying. Lord God, we bow in your presence, and we ask that your word would be our rule, that your spirit would be our guide and empowerment, and that your greater glory would be our supreme concern. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me begin today by saying something about the Greek New Testament word that we translate as gospel. It's right there on the screen. That word is euangelion, euangelion. Try to say that with me, euangelion. It literally means good news, a happy announcement. It is shorthand in the context of the New Testament for what God has done for us, for me and you, through Jesus Christ. Now, if something is shorthand, you know this. If it's shorthand, it's representative. It is a concise label for bigger things. So consider, if I speak, for example, of the fall of the Berlin Wall, I'm actually talking about much more than just the dismantling of bricks and mortar because Berlin Wall is shorthand for the Soviet communist expansionist program from World War II until about 1990. It's shorthand. The word gospel is kind of like this. At the most basic rudimentary level, it refers to the fact that Jesus Christ was resurrected. That's what it means at the most basic level, that death met its death in him. In a wider sense, however, it means a lot more. And so bearing this in mind, there are two things I want to do for you this morning. First, I want to make a few, interaction, a few observations about how Christians interact with the gospel. And then second, I want to highlight two distinct but overlapping core aspects of the gospel as it's laid out in Mark chapter 1. So number one, a few observations about how we interact with the gospel. And number two, I want to talk about two distinct aspects of the gospel. Let's start with how we interact with the gospel. A few things to say here. To begin, number one, I want you to recognize that the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life. It is the A to the Z. It's not just the ABCs. It's the A to the Z. In short, the gospel does not simply refer to the basic doctrines of how we get into God's kingdom. How we get into the kingdom of God. I like to put it like this, the gospel not only gets us into the kingdom, it also keeps us in the kingdom. It advances us through the kingdom. It is the engine of our spiritual growth, not just the spark plug. It's a pathway, not just a gateway, as I put it last Sunday. Now, what does that mean in more concrete terms? It means that the gospel is, by itself, in and of itself, the way that humans, the way that people like you and me, get renewed and transformed by God into the beauty and glory that we were created for. In other words, 
We don't believe and become Christians and then go on to try to move forward in the life of faith by essentially trying really, really hard to live according to biblical principles and precepts and rules. If that's what you think, you've been sorely misinformed. The secret to spiritual growth, to our renewal and transformation and elevation as human beings and the power of God lies in continually again and again and again and again, reapplying and more deeply grasping the gospel itself, seeing it drilled into your heart and your life. Grasping the truth, if I might put it this way, that in Christ you're forgiven by God, but you're not just forgiven, you're accepted. And you're not just accepted, but you're approved. And you're not just approved, but you're welcomed. And you're not just welcomed, you are cherished and desired. And that's never going to change. In Christ, that's how God sees you. Do you know it? Do you know it? I need to be reminded of that often and emphatically every day. We need to be doing this for one another in this community. What comes to mind when we think about God and how God thinks about us is the most important thing about us. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I want you to look at your neighbor and say that to him. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We're going interactive today. <laughs> Further to this, number two, how we interact with the gospel, I want you to see that the gospel is not just a set of beliefs that you've got to subscribe to in order to be a Christian or to be in the church. The gospel does not refer to just some minimum beliefs I've got to hold if I'm going to be a Christian. A whole lot of people think this way. Now, to be sure, that's partially true. We Christians do carry distinct and defining beliefs about God and ourselves and creation and the world, but when the gospel gets reduced down to just a minimum set of beliefs, we got a problem. Let me put it this way. If you think the gospel is chiefly or only just a little set of beliefs you have to subscribe to, then you end up with a vision of faith and the life of faith that parts paths with the vision that Jesus himself gives us in the New Testament which is precisely why we should, we should conceive of the gospel less as a set of beliefs and more as a grid, for example, as a worldview. Now, what's a worldview? That might be a big word uh, for some of us. Think of it like a pair of glasses. A worldview is a set of beliefs that are so basic and foundational to you in your very fiber of your being that you don't look at them so much as through them at everything else. I'm not, I don't use these glasses so I can look at them. I look through the glasses at everything else. A worldview is a lens that you look through to make sense of reality. C.S. Lewis very memorably encapsulated this theme when he wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Beautiful words. And finally, number three, how we interact with the gospel. Uh, because the gospel is not just a set of beliefs, but a grid, a lens through which we make sense of reality, it does not lend itself to being put in a single little nutshell. It has a fullness of meaning that resists being reduced down to some single simplistic principle or statement. Let me explain this. A lot of really, really important truths or doctrines tend to possess a fullness of meaning on account of which various aspects of a given doctrine or truth uh, can appear, at least on the surface, to stand in tension with one another. But if you fail to grasp all those different aspects, then you fail to grasp reality. 
That's a little bit conceptual, so let me illustrate this uh, in a way I think will help you grasp it. Uh, with attention to the biblical doctrine of Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible teaches us, and I think most of in the room here will know that, that Jesus was a really unique guy because he was, at one and the same time, fully God, but also fully human. He was fully God and fully human. In other words, he was not basically human with a kind of God consciousness, and he was not basically God with the illusion of a human appearance. He was truly and fully divine and human. Now, have you ever tried to explain that to someone who does not understand Christianity at all? You realize that you sound like an idiot. They want to reduce it to just one. They want to say Jesus was either human or he was divine, not both. That's impossible. That's like saying that uh, fire can be wet. It's not possible. Yet if you try to collapse it down, reduce it down, then you undermine the eye-popping, astounding biblical doctrine of Jesus Christ. And that means you're not rightly knowing Jesus. You're not knowing him as he is. Do you see? There's a fullness of meaning that is part and parcel of those tensions. The tensions contain the meaning. And the same thing applies with respect to the gospel, which has, guess what, more than one aspect. And the different aspects have to be held together even if sometimes they coexist with a little bit of tension. Here's the problem, though. We humans don't like tensions. We want to iron them out. Uh, we want to simplify and reduce and manage out those tensions. We often don't have the stomach for nuance and for mystery. But guess what? When it comes to the living God, there's a lot of mystery and there is some nuance. This is precisely why, by the way, that in different churches, including the churches along the strand out there, Ocean Highway, the gospel will be talked about differently. In some churches, the preacher says, unless there's an altar call at the end of every service, then you're not really preaching the gospel because the gospel is a summons to repent and believe. So get up here and rededicate. In other churches, a lot of churches in Vancouver where I used to live, for example, we're told that if you have any boundaries at all, that if you exclude anyone from your fellowship for any reason, that you're not really preaching the gospel because the gospel is love. It's full, unconditional love. And then there are churches, of course, that emphasize how Jesus is the Lord of mercy and justice. And so the church, therefore, should be a place that's always fighting for the poor and the marginalized because the gospel is about social justice. Why those differences? All those churches are using the same word. They're all talking about the gospel. So why do they ascribe different meanings to it? Because it's easy to miss the fact that the gospel has a fullness of meaning and that the different aspects have to coexist, just like Jesus was both divine and human. And you've got to hold it all together as they're laid out throughout the New Testament to honor that fullness of meaning. It's rich texture. The gospel may be simple, but it's not simplistic. It may be simple, but it's not simplistic which is precisely why you cannot put the gospel into a single, teeny, tiny little nutshell. You can't do that without chopping off some crucial aspect of it. So the best we can do is to put the gospel into a set of nutshells. And those nutshells are not appearing on that screen, but they were supposed to. I found a great picture of a set of nutshells. I had to search like 30 minutes for that picture. Anyway, imagine a picture of nutshells, and each shell had a little hole carved in it with a little scene in it. It was the perfect picture for this moment. 
imagine. Use your imagination. So it can't be into a single nutshell. It can be into a set of nutshells. And so along these lines, I want to highlight two key aspects of the gospel as they feature in our reading from Mark 1 this morning. First aspect comes from verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. Mark quotes the Old Testament prophet Isaiah who was speaking a long, long time ago about the fact that God was going to make a visit. Prepare the way of the Lord. That's what Isaiah said. And then Mark goes on to say that this prophecy has been fulfilled. God showed up. He came to this planet and he put on the face of Jesus of Nazareth. That happened. And the fact that that happened means that the gospel refers to historical events. That's one of its key aspects historical events. And this means, as a whole lot of theologians and preachers over the centuries have stressed, that the gospel is not primarily advice about how we're to live, so much as news about what Jesus Christ has done. The gospel is not primarily advice, it's news. Why? Because we're saved by grace. Let me explain. If you've been dozing, now's a good time to wake up. You're going to want to hear what I'm saying next. News is something that is done. Teaching or advice is something that I do. Good news salvation is that you're saved by what Jesus has done. Good advice salvation is that you're saved by doing the teaching I'm about to give you right now. Go out and do this and you'll be saved. In every other religion, at least so far as I've studied them, what you find is good advice salvation. And because of that, the category of history doesn't actually matter that much. In other words, what happened in history, what happened a long, long time ago, the resurrection, for example, isn't, chiefly, isn't really that important. It's chiefly what I do, what you do today. That's what matters when it comes to salvation. Christianity is utterly different from that. It is inescapably bound up with the historical events of Jesus' life, what he did. It's primarily news, not advice. By contrast, in Islam, how are you saved? A lot of you might not know many Muslim folks. I do. I have Muslim friends from Vancouver. I even went to Yemen once and spent a whole night talking to an imam during the middle of Ramadan. I'll tell you about that sometime. I almost got kidnapped on that trip. Didn't make it home. Wouldn't have been here today. I'll tell you about it sometime. So, in Islam... How are you saved in Islam? In Islam, you're saved by advice. You're saved by following the five pillars of Islam, by adhering to all those rules and regulations. And so ultimately, your salvation hinges on what you do and how well you do it, not what has been done for you. Your salvation, in other words, is not by grace. It's based on how well you follow that advice. Not so with Christianity. We're saved by what Jesus did. Jesus' death and resurrection are things that happened in history and which changed this world and which will change your life if you acknowledge them. The gospel is news of this. That's one of its key aspects. We are not saved by the teaching of Jesus, by following his advice. Oh, no, we are saved by Jesus himself. And every other religion, so far as I know, you're saved by the teaching of the founder. In Christianity, you're saved by the founder. There's a nutshell for you. It's one of many. I'm just giving you two today. I want you to know this. In Christianity, you're saved by the founder. It's good news. And I want you to know that I'm sorry if you're just now hearing that for the first time. If you want to talk more about this, come see me next week. 
Let's move on. Second and final aspect of the gospel I want to mention today surfaces in verses 9 through 11. That's where we read about Jesus' baptism. Jesus goes in the water with John, his cousin. He's coming out of the water. The heavens get torn open, and a voice of God thunders down, and it says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am so, so pleased. Now, when you read this passage, you might be thinking to yourself, What's all this about? Didn't Jesus already know that he was God's Son? So why is is this being affirmed here? The answer, of course, is yes, he did. He did know he was the unique son of God. Uh, So therefore, what was Jesus getting from God at this moment? What's, What's this all about? And the answer is that he's getting assurance. He's getting a heightened experience of his status as God's beloved son. Assurance, a heightened experience of his status. I want you to imagine a father and a son walking down the beach hand in hand. You can imagine me and Hugo. I was actually going to use a picture of me and Hugo to illustrate this, but he's got chicken pox, so not doing that today. Uh, Walking down the beach on Polly's Island, holding my son's hand, I pick him up at a certain moment. I, I just embrace him and say, I love you, buddy. You're my beloved son. Now, what was different from the time when Hugo was on the ground, holding my hand, and when I picked him up and embraced him? Was he more of a son to me? No. That's not what that's about. He's experiencing his sonship. His status didn't change. It was just a heightened experience of his status. That's what happens to Jesus right here in Mark chapter 1 at his baptism. And guess what? It's also something that happens to you and me. St. Paul has the gumption to apply this paradigm to us in Romans chapter 8. In that chapter, Paul says, The Holy Spirit does for me and for you what he did for Jesus in Mark chapter 1. We have received, says St. Paul, the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And that means that the gospel, in addition to being news about something that happened, is also a declaration that we are beloved sons and daughters of God our Father. Or to put it another way, we might say that the gospel is a status that we receive right now, not merely a reward that we receive later. Here again, a little bit of interreligious contrast and comparison is apropos. Like Christianity, nearly every other major world religion believes in a reward later. They've got some equivalent to the doctrine of heaven. However, what they don't give you is absolute assurance of your status right now. Think about it. If you're saved not by grace, but by works, by trying to follow the advice, by trying to keep all the rules, you can never really be sure of your status and your standing. In fact, you don't really have one. You won't know what it is until you get to the end of the life and everything gets evaluated. You can't know for sure in the middle of things. And therefore, you can't possibly have a sense of unconditional acceptance right now. And is there anyone in this room who does not want unconditional acceptance and approval? Raise your hand if you don't. I will send you to a therapist afterwards. In this way, all other religions, even if unintentionally, make you doubt your status. Gang, it is so, so crucial to grasp this second aspect of the gospel. If there's one thing you take home today, let this be it. If you don't grasp this aspect of the gospel, that we are beloved sons and daughters of God, not depending on how we do, but right now because of what Jesus did, you're going to have problems, and some of you already have these problems right now. Uncertainty and spiritual anxiety, hyper self-critical spirit, and a lot of negative self-talk, profound inner condemnation, restlessness, angst, 
spiritual depression, a lack of joy. And by the way, it did not take me long to come up with that list because I have experienced all of those things. And one of the main reasons that that has changed and that it is changing in my life is because I've come to inhabit the world called gospel more fully. And so can you. A lot of people think that asking Jesus for salvation to be your Savior is about getting a second chance. Your past sins have been wiped away, and now you have to live a good life. You got that second chance, so don't muck it up. This is exactly what we see in an indelible scene from one of the greatest movies ever made, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? It's where Delmar O'Donnell, played by Tim Blake Nelson, gets baptized. He comes up out of the water and he says, My sins have been washed away, all of them, even that supermarket I knocked over in Yadzu City. And then his friends say, But you said you were framed for that. Well, I lied, but the Lord washed that away too. From now on, because of my second chance, i got to live a good life. That attitude is all over the place, including in a lot of churches. It's basically saying, even though we've been saved by grace, now we've got to keep it up. You've got to keep yourself in salvation by your efforts. And by the way, if you're like me, that is not exactly a recipe for assurance. It comes to this. If you believe Christianity is just about a second chance... You're missing the full gospel. Because being a Christian means not just that our past sins were put on Jesus, but also that his righteousness has been put on us. And we wear that now every day. That's how St. Paul sums it up in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And what does that mean? It means that right now we get treated like Jesus deserves. We are treated as if we had done every good and noble and beautiful and righteous thing that he did instead of all the opposite things that I have done and that I still do. One of my favorite writers puts it like this. Jesus is the descent of God into our lives just as they are, not the ascent of ourselves to God, hoping that he might approve of us when he sees how so darn hard we're working. That's Eugene Peterson. How about that? And this, by the way, is why the Holy Spirit bears witness to our spirits, Romans 8.16. And the Holy Spirit, what does he bear witness to in my spirit and your spirit? Does he bear witness that if you try really, really hard, you might get into the family of God one day? Say it ain't so. It ain't so. The Holy Spirit bears witness deep down in my heart that through Christ I am already in the family of God. And so are you. We are already beloved children, sons and daughters of God because of what our brother Jesus did for us. And so there's another nutshell for you. And that one's worth the price of admission. Now, some of you are feeling right now, this is pretty radical. The gospel is pretty radical. Second chance Christianity is moralistic, and the gospel is so much more than that. Now, I want you to think about this. I want to think in closing about the everyday, tangible, really concrete implications of this second key aspect of the gospel for our emotional and mental state. When we sin, when we do something we ought not to do or fail to do something we ought to do, you got to get right with God. On that, we all agree. But why? This is the million-dollar question. If you know the gospel, if you know that you are unconditionally accepted and approved, then the reason you want to get right with God is that you miss Him. You can't stand to be distant from Him. You want Him. You yearn for that intimacy and friendship with Him. On the other hand... 
if you want to get right with God because you're worried about going to hell or losing your blessing or not having your prayers answered, then you might not really be getting the gospel. You're upset about losing things, about benefits. You're not missing the presence of God and intimacy with Christ. And that shows that your motivation deep down is fear, not love. And that's not the gospel. I hope you see that. I'm still working to see that. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe my gospel. That's what Jesus says to us. I speak to you in his name. Amen.